the moment has been the coronation, or some of you haven't, but some of us have. And uh, and uh, and uh, and and you thought you would come to church and escape from it, but you won't. Um, just so you know. And uh, you, you, you might be aware that there were some protesters yesterday in London uh, who have kind of coined this phrase, not my king. And uh, you can buy t-shirts now, and they had their own banners. Apparently the police wanted to acquire them, so they acquired them uh, yesterday. And, uh, and uh, there are now lots of banners with not my king on it. And uh, that, that analogy applies to the book of Philippians, because th- there was a bunch of Christians there in a colony, a Roman colony, which meant that these, these folks were really committed to the Roman cause. They, they loved the Roman flag, they loved the emperor, all of that. So they were hard line, kind of really into the Roman thing and Roman imperialism. And, and, and here you had this bunch of Christians who were going around wearing t-shirts basically saying, Caesar's not my king. Okay, now you just imagine in that context how popular that makes you doesn't make you very popular at all. And, uh, and the, the, the Christians there were suffering persecution uh, because people just saw them as seditious. Uh, and they were doing more than just taking their posters. And, and they were suffering persecution. And at the end of chapter 1, Paul talks a bit about that and about the experience of that. And he says, you know, it's, it's tough as a Christian. And it's tough facing what's happening in the world. And it's tough sometimes swimming against the tide. The, the, uh, the relationship between Christianity and political powers never quite got worked out in the first century. But as you saw yesterday, the church was crowning the king. So they did work out at some point, but that's another sermon. And, uh, and, uh, but here, the, the Christians are working out, what does this suffering mean for us? The fact that life is tough. And Paul in Philippians sets out some principles, I think, that that help us to understand how we deal with life in its ups and downs. How we deal with the fact that life is tough and life doesn't always go our way. And, And as we've been working through this letter, we've just seen how Paul, his his own resilience in dealing with what he has to deal with. And again, presenting Paul as a model in relation to that. But this morning we're going to look at Paul going beyond himself as a model of of effective thinking to the model of Jesus Christ. And and in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, let this attitude. And then he goes on to give us one of the most famous hymns in the Bible. And it's, it's a wonderful, it's probably an early piece of liturgy. It's maybe something that they sang in the early church. Can we move the, the PowerPoint uh, to the ancient hymn? Yeah, thanks. It's, it's something that they sang and celebrated. And it's actually the center of the letter to Philippians. The, the, all the themes and all the parts that come together in this letter are based and related to this central idea, this wonderful and amazing hymn. And yesterday, if you watched the coronation, you would have actually seen this hymn being lived out. You, you see the, the idea that kingly power is a reflection 
of Jesus' power. And uh, that's especially true today because we all know that Charles doesn't really have any real power. And uh, sorry, Charles. And, uh, but, but Jesus does. <laughs> and, and actually, all those symbols of power and things like that are, are now just symbols. They really don't signify anything. But when it comes to King Jesus, they really do. And, and so it's a kind of reflection of the power and authority of the King of Kings being lived out in terms of Charles and what we saw yesterday. And, and, and the moment that we saw Philippians 2 being lived out is when they came to the point of coronation or, or crowning the king. And, and just before that, you'll know that they had this really sacred moment. In fact, so sacred they didn't let the TV cameras see it, of the anointing of the king. And, uh, and so the king comes in, Charles comes in, and he's all dressed in his robes and things because he's the king. The minute the queen died, he became the king. So, so he's recognized as the king, and he comes in dressed as a king. And then in the middle of the service, they take off all the kingly robes uh, until he's just down into this, this white cassock, and, uh, and, and, and then he kneels before all the religious officials, and he's anointed. He's anointed, just there, sitting in his nightshirt, effectively. This king in a nightshirt. <laughs> and this is the central event. And then they begin to put on all the paraphernalia, and he gets the crown, and he gets the globe, and he gets everything, you see? That's Philippians 2. And, and there is actually direct correlation between the two, uh, historically. You see, what we see being lived out is this idea that Jesus, who was God... Uh, translators have struggled with how they translate verse 6 but it, I, I like the way the King James translates it where it says uh, who being in the very form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God it, it basically is a way of saying that Jesus was God he was king he was in that position and yet he humbled himself. He divested himself of his royal position, just like we saw Charles doing yesterday. Divested himself, and he became selfless. And he took on the form of a servant. You know, no robes, no crowns, no scepters, none of it. He emptied himself. There's a Greek word, kenosis. It means a self-emptying. And there was a self-emptying. He divested himself of all the symbols and expressions of divine authority. And, and, and it says he took the form of a man. He became a man. And, and not only did he become a man, but he became a servant. And, and so in, in terms of this is the opposite of social climbing. I didn't get an invite yesterday to the coronation. I was disappointed. But I'm sure if you did have one, you'd feel you're at the top of the social apex. And, uh, well, this is the exact reverse of this. It's, this is dissension. He has become a servant, a slave. And again, to Romans, that's the worst. You know, that is the lowest of the low, slaves in terms of the social order. And, and Paul says he became a slave. But not only did he become a slave, he actually went further than that in his act of service. He offered his life and he died. And he didn't just die any death. He died on a cross. And so here is the king, the king of kings, the lord of lords, 
the one who does not count it robbery to be called God. And yet he has been divested of all the symbols of power. He has taken the form of a servant. He has died, and he's even died on a cross as an executed criminal. The divine. And, and, and this, this moment, and, and, and Paul, and as the early church sung this, they, they were just caught in the wonder of this, that this is what God has done as an expression of his love towards us. An amazing event that the king should so humble himself in this way. And then they have the ascension. And Paul goes on and says, and so this Lord Jesus, the servant king, this king who has died on a cross, let's go to the next slide. He has been given the name that is above every name so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He said this act of self-humiliation, this act of self-emptying, this act of becoming a servant, and this act of dying on the cross is the moment that allows God to acknowledge him. And just as Charles came in as a king, was stripped of all his robes, and then was dressed again, this time experientially, with the symbols of kingly glory, so Jesus has been given that place. And the affirmation is that Jesus is Lord so that everyone will buy. One of, one of the things that was talked about last, uh, last night or yesterday were, was the pluralism within the service. There were lots of different religions and, and various other factors within this. And, and uh, Christianity, certainly in terms of this hymn, kind of solves the issue of religious pluralism. And uh, it, it, it really makes a claim, and again, it's a claim that's difficult sometimes in a modern world, but it basically says that Jesus is Lord of everything. And, and it's an analogy of ownership. What Paul is saying, or what this hymn is saying, is it's saying Jesus, through his death and his self-humbling, has been given the trust deeds for the whole of humanity, for the whole of the world, for the whole of the universe. He has become the rightful owner of all these things. That's the kind of declaration that, that is being made in this hymn. And what Paul is saying is that at this moment, the world is full of people who fail to recognize Jesus as Lord. Now, some people say, oh, I made Jesus my Lord. You ever heard that? You know, I became a Christian. He was my servant. And then I thought I'd make him my Lord. All right. You ever heard that kind of? people talk. Well, it's just nonsense. <laughs> you see, the affirmation is Jesus is Lord. What does it mean? It means he owns the universe. He owns you and he owns me. He is our rightful king and owner. He is Lord. Now, you have a choice here. You either recognize that now or you will recognize it later, <laughs> but you are going to recognize it. You are going to recognize that Jesus is Lord. You don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. You acknowledge and recognize his lordship. And sort of yesterday again, there was an element of that. Charles was king, but we recognized him as king. The point of the hymn is it's better to recognize Jesus as your Lord now rather than later. But we will all stand before Jesus and say, you are Lord. 
This is an amazing hymn. And, and as I say, it's just a celebration of what Christianity is about in so many of its dimensions. But it appears as Paul is talking about a very real problem. You see, in chapter 1, he talks about the opposition that the Philippian Christians were experiencing because they were declaring that Caesar was not their king and, and some of the consequences of that. In fact, Paul himself was in an imperial jail in Rome probably because he was seen as seditious. But here he says there's another problem. And the problem is not the attacks that come from out with the church. The problems are the attacks that come from within the church. And, and what Paul says is part of the problem here is all the stuff that's going on in your head. And, and actually, we need to get this under control so that the church is unified so that it's not full of discord and conflict and fighting, but that actually you are working together. And, and so he, he affirms here that we need to live in harmony, to lay aside discord, to shed personal ambitions and pride and the desire for prominence and prestige, and have in your hearts that humble, selfless desire to serve. And then he holds up Jesus in this hymn as the model. You see, how you deal with the stuff that generates the conflicts in your life. Now, I know you guys all live conflict-free lives, okay? So I, I know I'm probably just speaking to myself and one or two others. But, but you know, conflict is a reality. And, uh, and, and sometimes you're not even looking for it. Uh, at one point, I stayed in the east end of Glasgow. And uh, people used to pick fights in the east end of Glasgow. Okay, so you know, for no reason whatsoever. Uh, if I, I saw one happening a few weeks back, I was on a bus, and uh, somebody gets on a bus, and they sit behind them. I think they were a wee bit drunk, and the, the person behind kind of looked at them a bit disgruntled why they drunk on my bus, and uh, and and the guy goes, "What are you looking at?" You know, oh no. You just know what's coming. And actually, no matter what you do, you probably cannot extract, extricate yourself from the conflict. You ever been there? No? Okay, you've all lived circles lives, I know. You know hang out in the east end. Oh, of course, the east end of Glasgow's posh now, isn't it? <laughs> Change days. But sometimes conflict occurs even when you are not looking for it. And, and Paul identifies in verse 3 three things that generates this conflict. He talks of selfish ambition, personal prestige, and a concentration on self. Now, the things he lists here are not necessarily bad things. And, and it's one of the things that, that, that Paul explores, this balance. This balance between maintaining some form of self-respect and self-esteem, which is very important for your own mental health and well-being, and actually being a servant, and the attitude of being a servant. And, and, and what, what he's describing here is what happens when we don't regulate our need for self-esteem and self-worth through the model of Jesus Christ. When actually we begin to lose 
the parameters that God wants to set around these things. You see, selfish ambition uh, he, he, that he talks about. In, it, it's really about a need to control. One of the things that, that often happens in, uh, in, in, in mental health when we're, we're struggling with things is that we have a sense of everything is out of control. And, and, and that sense, if it gets intense enough and deep enough, can just be like, wow. Sometimes people, in order to counter that, they need to have massive order in their lives. Uh, you know, they, they spend their time alphabetically arranging their record collection. And, and you wonder, why, why are you doing that? <laughs> and uh, it gives you a sense of control. See, and, and, that's, and that helps. So you, you'll know if you've ever struggled with mental health, you, you'll be told, just do something really simple. You know, wash the dishes. Do something that you feel you have some control over. And the reason that is, is because we have a need within us to feel safe. Uh, you, you ever been in a situation where somebody is driving erratically and you're not feeling safe? Your natural inclination is to ask them to get out of the seat and I'll take over. Because <laughs> we, we've been given this innate sense of needing to feel safe, needing to feel secure. And when we have control, we generally feel safe and secure. And when we don't have control, that sense is really, really upset. And so what that generates within us is this desire that Paul expresses a selfish ambition, but it's really about a desire to control. It's actually to be invulnerable, to, to not have anything which poses a threat and makes us feel unsafe. And again, it's not wrong, but it is wrong when it becomes all-consuming. You know, and, and I'm sure we've met people who become phenomenally controlling individuals. And, 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 and what's going on with them? Well, it's this need to feel safe, not to feel vulnerable. Well, one of the things that we need to understand, and, and it, it's an interesting analysis of conflict that um, uh, it was in a book of theses I read a few years back. And it was saying every single conflict that we encounter is actually rooted in a need that someone has. And, and, and the need to feel safe and the need to feel con in control is often something that's at the root of an awful lot of conflict that occurs. Because if people don't feel in control and it's safe, then it expresses itself in this kind of conflict. Selfish ambition. And what Paul's saying is when that sense gets out of control, it becomes problematic. It's personal prestige. This is the need to be someone. And again, it's not a wrong thing. You know, the sense that you matter to someone. It's a fundamental human need. You know, I'm, I'm sure I won't need to describe to you the heartbreak and the pain of, of discovering that you don't matter to someone. You know, and how that makes you feel. And, and so we have this deep-seated need, the sense of, I matter. Actually, you know, I'm, I'm significant, and, and it's not necessarily an arrogant thing. It's just an innate human need to know that we matter to someone, to know that we have significance. And, and, and that becomes, but again, when that gets out of control, it, it means that we become all-consuming. And uh, I, I was out 
on a Friday night. And um, don't get out much these days, it's sad. And uh, I was amazed at how many people, uh, they were being groups of people sitting socializing, how many people were actually preoccupied with filming themselves, not, not just being on their phones, but actually filming themselves to post to their social media updates so everybody could see what they were doing. And I just thought, wow, the narcissism of this is phenomenal. And it takes me when I feel old, okay. <laughs> Although actually, it's not just young people, but the narcissism of it. But it's all rooted in the sense, I matter. Even, even creating a sense. Concentration on self. You know, the, the, this need to feel a sense of being valued. And, and again, the, the, this, this idea of that, that, that the self, that, that I'm not all walked over. See, one of the things that people think is that to be a Christian, when we do the hymn that we've just read, people think that that means Christians have to get walked over. And you have to kind of become nothing. And you have to let people treat you like dirt. And you have to allow all this to happen. And then you're really like Jesus, aren't you? But that's not what Paul is saying. You know, but, and there's a need in all of us to actually not allow that to happen. Someone once said to me, you know you have a servant's attitude when someone treats you like one. And uh, you, you discover what's there. And we have a need not to be treated like servants. You know, just to be taken for granted. We, we, we have a need there. And again, if, uh, if when people feel taken for granted, that's often a, a, a driver for conflict. I, I remember when uh, I was at university, I had a part-time job at Marks and Spencer's. And uh, I, at, at break time, I used to go up, and there was like segregated dining room. All the women sat over there, and the men sat over there. But unfortunately, my break time never coincided with any other men. So I either went and sat by myself, really lonely, drinking coffee and looking sad on this table. And I didn't really understand this too young to understand the dynamics. Uh, so I just went and sat with my female co-workers. And, and initially, they were all about, oh, a man, a bit odd. Uh, but then they just started to talk like normal. And I got all this insight into women, middle-aged women at that time. And it was, wow, it was an education. Learned a lot more there than I did at university uh, at this table. And, uh, and, and, and one of the things that this woman, I remember, it, it kind of shocked me. She actually talked about how she was spoiling for a fight with her husband and uh, how she deliberately made this meal that she thought he would complain about and then she could go absolutely crazy with him. If anybody recognizes this, I don't know. Right? They're all looking blank. But this is this. So I was like, really? And, and she was talking about the fact that she was really upset because after she, she said, she described it this way. She said she sat the meal before him, went through to the living room, lit a cigarette, and waited for him to complain. <laughs> she was waiting. And he walked through after eating the meal, and he said, that was lovely, darling. Thanks for doing something different, <laughs> which made her matter. <laughs> what was her problem? She didn't want to be treated like a servant anymore, and she needed to express that conflict. You see, there was always a need there. And, uh, and these needs are right. You know, it's right that we have a need not to be treated as a servant. It's right that we have a sense that we should matter. 
It is right that we should feel a sense of feeling safe and in control and not always vulnerable. These are important things. And, and again, in our society, if you listen to people, they will tell you about them. You know, they'll t if you listen to people in terms of your mental health and your mental well-being, they will sing this. However, what's happened in our world is we've lost perspective on it. And these things have got out of control. These needs have got out of control. You know why? Because we have lost sight of the paradigm in the hymn. It's okay to need to feel safe. It's okay to need to feel matter. It's okay to need to feel valued. But it's not okay when these become all-consuming. And these become the paradigm on which you run your life. The problem with our modern world is it's driven by this stuff. The reason we have so much conflict and unhappiness is because we're all being driven by this stuff and our needs aren't being met. And you know the problem is not trying to meet all these needs. It's actually rediscovering what we saw Charles in act yesterday at the coronation. We discover what it is to self-empty, to recognize that we have these needs. But you know what? We are driven by a higher authority the desire to be a servant and trust God. And here's the thing that Paul's saying, he's saying when Jesus trust God, God came through. When we trust God to give us a sense of security, not trying to control it ourselves, but we trust God to give us that. When we trust God to develop our sense that we matter and we're valuable to him. When we trust God to take the sense that actually we're not taken for granted because God sees what we do and he values it. When we build our lives trusting God, then we come out the other side and he's the one that ensures that we get what we need. Paul's saying, be like Jesus and trust him and model these things. What are the cures? Well, let's just very briefly. Paul in verse 1 talks a little more about these ideas. And, and he says there are two things to the, that address the discord that you often find in the life here of the church. And he says, first of all, be in Christ. And, and, and there's a parallelism going on here. So Hebrew parallelism says one thing in one way and then it says it in another way. So sometimes if you read a word or a line and you don't understand what it means, if you read a couple lines later where they repeat it, they'll just say it in a different way. And he says, you are in Christ, so you shouldn't be fighting. And he explains what that means a couple of words later. He says, being in Christ means fellowship of the Spirit. And, and, and uh, you've heard me talk about this before. But what Paul's saying is our unity in Christ is based on the fact that we have the work of the Spirit in our lives. Uh, one of my favorite things is the, to describe the difference between Presbyterians and Baptists. And, and Baptists on their good days when they're not trying to be Presbyterians. And, uh, but, but Presbyterians believed that unity was based on a declaration of truth. So you would have 12 statements, and if you tick them all, we're unified. We agree on these things. And, uh, but the problem was if you only agreed on 11 and not 12, it was like, we've got to start another church. So you had another Presbyterian church and another Presbyterian. Because unity was all about propositional truth and that we take all the propositions. So we can only be unified if we agree about everything. And if we disagree, we have to start another church. Paul says that's not the basis of unity. Your unity is based on the Spirit of God, which means that I can disagree with you even on some of these key propositions, 
but we can be one because we are unified by the Spirit of God. That's the model that I hope that we will show in SBC, that we're unified because of the Spirit of God, even though we may take radically different positions on certain issues. And, and it's okay to do that. In fact, it's good to do that. But our unity is not based on whether we all sign up and agree. It's based on the Spirit of God. He, he then says it's got to be based on love. He, and, and by love, he uses this word affection, but it means soft-hearted and empathetic. He's saying it's based on the fact that you are soft-hearted towards one another and you feel what the other person is feeling, even if they disagree with you. And you act with mercy or empathy towards them. He says these two things. If you maintain the fellowship of the Spirit and you exercise empathy in the church, you'll get rid of some of this discord. Let's go to the next slide. And, and then he says, then you will find that you share the same mind, the same love, the same spirit, and the same purpose. That's how you address this stuff. So you model your needs being regulated by that servant attitude that Christ modeled. You demonstrate fellowship of the spirit and you employ love which means empathy and soft-heartedness towards one another. And in a community like that, we will resolve our discord issues. You know, in our society, this is desperately what we need. In a society where our needs have become paramount and our mental health has gone crazy because we can't realize these needs, we need to recover the sense of what it means to be a servant. We need to recover the, the sense of what it means to have unity of the Spirit. And we need to recover the sense of loving one another. Then we will realize exactly what was lived out yesterday by Charles in that ceremony. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we just pray that you will speak to every single one of us, Lord. We pray that we would know you and we would model that servant-heartedness that you modeled, that we would trust you to realize our needs. Lord, that we would be a people filled with your spirit and full of your love. We ask this in your name. Amen. I'm going to ask that we, we stop our uh, live streaming, so thanks for joining us online. And I'm going to ask Paul to just